0: Welcome to From Crisis to Prevention, Powerful Stories for Change, a podcast by Smart. Every episode, we'll be talking with people who are working upstream to prevent housing instability and homelessness across Canada. Working upstream in the prevention space is key to building vibrant communities. And we are your hosts, Jess and Beth.
1: this episode, we are speaking with Janice Abbott, CEO of ATIRA Women's Resource Society and ATIRA Property
0: Management. Abbott has dedicated her career to helping Vancouver's most vulnerable. She's been with ATIRA since 1992. She has led the organization from a single transition house to a large multi-service agency with more than 20 non-residential programs and 58 non-market housing sites across the Lower Mainland, totaling just over 3,200 units of housing.
1: In this episode, Janice speaks about the suite of resources Atira uses to prevent evictions, including the Good Neighbour Agreement. The Good Neighbour Agreement is designed to make sure all tenants are committed to making their neighbourhood and community a safe, secure, happy, and healthy place to live.
0: Janice discusses the link between violence against women and homelessness, and the importance of acknowledging that experiences of women's homelessness are diverse and often invisible. Atira is grounded in an anti-oppressive and trauma-informed framework, which supports long-term housing solutions for women. Listen in to hear what Janice has to say about macro-level solutions to preventing women's homelessness. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast and speaking a little bit more about Atira and um, the work that you're doing there. Did you want to start off telling us a little bit about yourself
2: and uh, Atira? Sure. Mm, I guess I'll start, I'll start at the beginning with the obvious. <laughs> no. my, um, I'm, my name is Janice Abbott. I'm the CEO of Atira, um, and I've been with Atira for uh, more than 26 years, always in this same position. Um, Atira is a uh, is primarily a women's anti violence organization, though we manifest our mandate through um, through housing. Uh, we do operate almost eight hundred units of uh, women only housing, and uh, another seventeen hundred ish of. Uh, co-ed housing. We subcontract our uh, the, the management of our co-ed housing to Atira Property Management, which is a wholly owned for-profit social enterprise of Atira Women's Resource Society. Yeah, so that's us.
0: So we we want to focus a little bit in on the Good Neighbor Agreement. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? I know that you said that you wrote it yourself. Mm-hmm. So we'd love to hear how
2: that started and um, why. Yeah. There was a need for that. So I should you know so pr- probably uh, start off by mentioning that um, that Atira has some uh, pretty clear and specific um, values. We operate within an anti-oppression framework work. Uh, We are inclusive feminists. Um, we embrace harm reduction and we value innovation. So that's kind of the, the framework in which we operate um, and the good neighbor agreement is, is based or informed based on or informed by that framework. Um, When I, you know, said I wrote it myself, I want to be careful to say that there are uh, countless examples of good neighbor agreements available on the internet. And so um, we didn't start uh, from scratch. So we were able to find um, various examples uh, from various places across North America, really. Um, And so we had a place to start. Um, What what I did, I guess, was adapt it so that it it was consistent with our mission, vision, and values, and and what that meant mostly was changing the language, uh, so specific words that were used, embracing some of the things um, that matter to us, like inclusion um, and safety for women and children, and um, and also changing it from um, "thou shall not." To a more empowering language, so uh, here are all the things that we do together, as opposed to a set of rules. So, Janice, for organizations
1: that are looking to
2: um,
1: implement a good neighbor agreement, have you had some, some I guess multiple iterations as as you've kind of learned? Yeah. Um, what works and what doesn't?
2: Yeah, I like to think that all of our documents at ATIRA are living documents. Um, our understanding of the world changes, how we use language changes, um, and so uh, the Good Neighbor Agreement, like everything else here, has to um, has to be changed as as we get better at what we do and understand better that what better what we do, and as we come to understand and empathize with and have compassion for. Um, the folks who live with us. So um, like everything else here, it is absolutely a living document that needs to be reviewed um, relatively regularly and changed as our understanding of the world changes.
1: And I'm curious, um, what's the process for going over the agreement and sort of getting uh, tenants to buy into it or to understand why why you're using a good neighbor agreement?
2: So the good neighbor agreement um, forms part of the rent up package. So it's actually, actually an addendum to their residential tenancy agreement that we sign with um, our tenants. So, so technically, the one that they sign when they move in is the one that, that applies to them. Um, we can give updated copies uh, as we change or improve um, the residential tenancy package. Um, so when we sit down, I mean, one of our, our values as well with respect to our tenants is we try to be really transparent upfront uh, about you know what you're going to get evicted for, so that people don't they know what their their rights are and their res- as well as their responsibilities. So there's no surprises for them. So um, so this the Good Neighbor agree- Agreement is part of that transparency. Uh, we just feel. We owe it or we have an obligation to our tenants to let them know, um, you know, what the guidelines are for living together and how we, I mean, mostly it's focused on how we treat each other. Um, There's a few items in the Good Neighbor Agreement, you know, around making sure you put your garbage out, although... Uh, although, honestly, that's something that impacts neighbors as well. So it's 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 really fo- focused on how we live together in a community and respect our neighbors and respect each other and respect ourselves. Um, so we'll, we go over it when tenants move in, and we give them an opportunity to ask questions. Um, we don't have anybody refuse to sign it because it really is a um, – a golden rule kind of good neighbor agreement. It's, you know, treat others how you want to be treated yourself kind of document.
1: I'm just wondering, Janice, if you can speak um, a bit more broadly about other practices you're doing to um, prevent having to do evictions in your housing.
2: Sure. We, we We have a suite of tools. So we have eviction policies that are grounded in trying to keep people housed. So we require our, our, our frontline staff, our program managers, our building managers to work hard to keep people housed. Um, and, and our eviction policies support them in that. So eviction is uh, almost never the first uh, course of action. Um, the exception is uh, obviously physical violence. Um, but otherwise, we our eviction policies really encourage our, our staff to work hard to keep our tenants housed. The other uh, tool that we have is we have a fairly robust prevention of violence against women um, policy booklet. Uh, And one of those um, policies talks about the risk, uh, especially that women face when they're homeless or have nowhere to go. And so we have really robust policies about not only keeping women housed, but also making space for women if they happen to show up at two o'clock in the morning with nowhere to go. So, not putting women out on the street and in danger. So, even if it's only a temporary accommodation, even if they sleep on the couch in the office. Um, so, th- so those kinds of policies. So, it's uh, the Good Neighbor Agreement is um, is one of a suite of tools that we have that um, that we work hard to keep people housed.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that um, preventative transparency upfront is, is something that would be of a lot of value for incoming tenants. Um, could you tell us a little story maybe about um, the effect of the good neighbor agreement or, or uh, a success story, if you will, of something of, of a tenant that has come through your housing?
2: Um, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of going through the Rolodex in my head we we do low barrier housing so we house a lot of folks who have um who have a lot of struggles uh you know from the obvious which is poverty to struggles with substance use struggles with um, mental wellness and we um and so our policies are are sort of centered on that kind of a tenant population And so they're probably unique in terms of what many uh, landlords would do. So I think about really just how few evictions we do, given the number, and one of the success stories is we do very few evictions, given the number of units we have and the tenant population that we work with. uh, If we do more than um, a couple of evictions a year, uh, yeah, that would be shocking. I think that's one of the, the most telling things. You know, I can't tell you for sure that it's the good neighbor agreement that, you know, that informs how many uh, evictions we do. I can say that it's the suite of tools, the, the good neighbor agreement, the eviction policy, the violence against women policies. Um, it's all of those things together, as well as having a well-trained staff um, who know what our policies are and and who who work hard with us to keep people housed. So it's all of those things together, I think, that that result in uh, how few evictions we do. I can think of uh, one woman in particular who struggles both with substance use and struggles with mental wellness and who can be um, uh, violent, aggressive and violent, and how hard we worked her work to keep her housed over four or five years. I think she's been evicted from almost every other um, housing in the, in the downtown east side. Um, and so one of the other tools we use as well is we uh, have the ability to transfer tenants to new buildings if they get into a, um, you know, a violent altercation with a neighbor um, and give someone a, a fresh chance. So uh, so we have those kinds of stories as well, um, where when when we've run out of options, we can we can transfer a tenant to another building to ensure that they don't end up in a shelter or on the street.
1: Janice, um, I was reading one of your reports, and I was talking about working from a trauma-informed and anti-oppressive framework. Yes. So I was just curious if for our listeners out there: Can you explain what that looks like?
2: Sure. So I think what it what it means, sort of at its core, is that we understand that people, including our tenants' experiences, are vastly different in terms of being able to get insecure housing, being able to keep housing. So, uh, racism, sexism, misogyny, ableism, uh, transphobia, homophobia, all of those things. Um, play a role in, play a very uh, valid role in people's lives and in particular when they're looking for housing. And so um, we need to be informed by that understanding. We need to be informed by the harm our actions cause based on how people experience the world. Um, And same with, with trauma. So we know that most of the folks that we house have experienced trauma across their lifetimes and in particular women. So with the women we house. And so that could be, you know, experiences of childhood sexual abuse, um, apprehension into the foster care system, violence in intimate relationships and intimate relationships can be a partner relationship. Um, It can be a relationship with a date. And so how how, uh, people behave is often based on their experiences of trauma. And it's important that we don't take personally some of the manifestations of that trauma. So we need to have thick skins to understand if someone's angry, it may not actually be about us. Um, and that we uh, we need to be compassionate about and informed by that and not evict people for things like calling us names. So I, I think in a very practical sense, um, understanding the harm that eviction causes um, and in particular causes, uh, Certain groups of people, and and having that inform every decision we make all of the time.
0: Janice, can you speak more directly to the link you see between violence against women and
2: experiencing homelessness? Yeah, I, the um, homelessness for for women, and especially women who've experienced violence, is uh, is a complex thing, and it's often not captured in our homeless counts and in our understanding of homelessness. So when I think about homelessness for women who experience violence, I think about women who stay in violent relationships because they have nowhere else to go. That's a form of homelessness to me. A woman who's staying in a transition house is homeless. A woman who is trading sex for a, for a, a more safe place to stay at night is homeless. And I mean more safe than staying on the streets. So it's not necessarily a safe Place It's just for her, the choice is the streets where it's profoundly unsafe or um, trading sex. And sometimes um, being willing to, willing is a, a word, but, but trading violence for a place to stay at night because it's safer than being on the streets. So um, women are forced to do all kinds of things to keep roofs over the head, to prevent their children from being apprehended. Uh, and and I think that that form of homelessness isn't isn't truly counted or recognized when we look at home, homeless statistics or 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 when we're developing policy around housing and who gets housed. Um, so, for instance, in housing first models, often uh, you know, and, and this is not a bad thing. Often it's the uh, folks who are street homeless who are. Um, prioritized. And that means more men get into housing, which means that housing units are taken up by men who are street homeless and women who are um, trading sex for a place to stay or staying in a violent relationship. Um, There's fewer of those units available to them. So I think we need to do a better job of understanding the ways in which women and children are homeless and developing policies and practices and programs that address that.
1: Are you seeing um, some promising practices that are working upstream to prevent that?
2: Um, I think we still have a long way to go. I do believe that uh, there's more recognition, based on the work of um, many amazing women from across the country, that there is more recognition that we're not adequately capturing women's homelessness, and that's disadvantaging women and children. Um, and I think there is more work being done uh, to figure figure this out. Um, but it hasn't quite been figured out yet.
0: What do you think needs to shift in order for us to, um, get a little bit closer to addressing this invisible, um, homelessness that women are experiencing? Well, the
2: first thing we have to do is we have to get everyone to recognize it and agree that it, that it is, is that it is part of the homelessness issue. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that's work, right? It's work. Um, and we live in a, we, I mean, we continue to live, if you read the news, if you, if you listen to women, we continue to live in a society that's profoundly um, sexist and profoundly uh, racist. Um, so so it's not easy to convince people to look at things in new ways, um, But like I say, I think Mm -hmm. there's a, I I don't think I know there's a group of, you know, really awesome women from across this country who are working to change that.
1: Janice, I just, I have a note here and um, I wanted to ask you about it. It's backing up a little
2: bit. But is ATIRA working market rent landlords? Uh, We have, we do have a number of units. We work with some other organizations and we have a number of um, partnerships with private sector landlords, too, where we can apply rent supplements or um, or where they're willing to accept uh, a slightly smaller rent or lower rent in order to accommodate some of the women we're working with so um, yeah and we also work with or we manage some uh, market units for other nonprofits property manage um, who are doing the same thing who are developing partnerships with private sector landlords in order to increase the um, the number of uh, below market units in the city and across the lower mainland okay
1: And how are you finding engaging with the market rent landlords?
2: Uh, so those, certainly the the ones that we've um, developed partnerships with are already predisposed to working mm-hmm. together and those relationships are are solid and positive. We would like to have more landlords involved, uh, you know, but you have to, you have to be engaged in this. So, um, but definitely the, the landlords we're working with are, are, are good. They're, you know, they're great relationships, and we are appreciative um, that we're able to develop them. Janice,
1: on a citywide level, would you like to see change? What, like, what are, what's your kind of call to action that needs to happen immediately?
2: So, I would like to I mean, for me, it's about recognizing and recognizing and developing policies that are are gendered. So, you know when when we're doing um, temporary modular housing, when we're building new housing programs, we need to look at all of that through a gendered lens. I would like to see every single housing um, organization, every nonprofit society required to have Um, A gender strategy or a policy to have violence against women policies as part of the um, procurement process, to have anti-oppression policies. So I I think that would be my number one call to action is that in order to really affect change, we all need to be working together on this. And to me, um, anti-oppression policies and practices and uh, policies that address gender and race and ableism and um, you know, other forms of oppression should, should just be a given. They should just be a given. And when um, decisions are being made about uh, where and who and how housing is developed and operated, those need to be considered in the proc- procurement process.
1: Can you give us a concrete example of a city or an organization that you know of that's doing something like that,
2: taking gender into uh, account? Yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah. You know, I think there's there's um, there's certainly lots of goodwill and good intentions, but it actually needs to be um, it needs to be embedded in procurement policies. So, you know, the city of Vancouver um certainly has and the province um talk about having a gender lens on everything uh everything they do and I think and the and the government and the federal government. So I think I think there are lots of good intentions, we just haven't seen it in sort of that nitty-gritty practical place yet. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not seeing the language in the actual RFPs no, that are coming out, no, or yeah. so yeah. so it needs to kind of work its way down from the um, I think the genuine and good intentions of the politicians into actual practice. There might be some learning there on on
0: their part too of how how to incorporate um, that language in, right? Like you said, the good intentions aren't aren't enough to actually see see the
2: change. Well, we all we, we all know the adage the road to hell is paved with good intentions I, I don't know you know, I don't know where that adage comes from but it's but it's true like you you, you need more than good intentions and I do believe the intentions are genuine I, I believe that that they're you know that they're genuine and that um, those people who are in leadership positions want to make change it just needs to be prioritized so that it that it works its way into actual procurement practices and into the practices of
0: mm-hmm.
2: not-for-profits and housing providers. Does Atira have any sample language that you would like to
0: see? I'm just so curious about about this kind of a kind of thing. Like, how do you actually move forward if they, if the people who are coming out and with the asks don't have the language necessary, and there's a gap there? Mm-hmm. How do you see closing
2: that gap? So we, we said we definitely have language that we've developed over time in terms of mm-hmm. our, our mission our vision and our values and in terms of our own practice policies internally and um, and how we uh, we operate how we're informed um, but mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't make those up um, the, the internet I don't know how anybody got anything done before the internet and I'm old enough to remember what that was like. But there's so many um, amazing women, amazing people who are doing this work and this language um, and this information isn't hard to find. So, you know, and the the people who can help inform it are not, the women who can help inform it, the people are are not hard to find. So there there just has to be a will to look look for it.
0: We just have one final question that we ask everyone. So that
2: question is, what does home mean to you? Yeah. So on the sort of mercenary level, home is a roof over your head and hopefully a bed to rest your body in at night and somewhere to have a meal. Um, but more than that, it's a place where you feel safe. It's a p- place where you can um, develop and nurture relationships, whether whether it's with the people in your home or your neighbors or your community. It's a place that you feel mm-hmm. settled so it's not having to worry that you're going to be evicted or um, that your building is going to be uh, torn down. It's all, it's all those things. It's, it's a building and so much more. Thank you very
1: much, Janice.
0: special thanks to the Vancouver Foundation for their support of this podcast.